Roxy, I can't believe we've reached season six of Saved by the City. That's wild. How do people usually celebrate a sixth anniversary? I don't know about podcast anniversaries, but <laughs> sixth wedding anniversaries are known as the iron anniversary. I guess couples get each other iron things. Romantic. I couldn't even think of an iron item I would get somebody I love. <laughs> well, actually, a cast iron skillet might be a nice practical gift. Well, I do think we're iron sharpening iron around here to keep it biblical. Yes. Keeping each other sharp, sassy, and occasionally steamed off. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two Christian women keeping our minds sharp and our hearts open here in New York. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. Our first guest for this season six has me thinking a lot about institutions. This is your exciting lead for a season opener? Institutions? (laughs) (laughs) They're so sexy. I promise this will be interesting, in part because our guest today now leads an institution we both have some history with. That's right. Russell Moore used to be an SBC Southern Baptist Convention bigwig specifically president of the ethics and religious liberty arm of the largest Protestant, let's say, body. And then some things happened in 2015, in 2016, pretty much every year after that. If you're interested in finding out more about all of those scandals, you can go to Religion News Service, where we covered them many times, including some leaked letters from Russell Moore himself. Today, Russell is a big wig still, but now at Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of the evangelical movement and also where both of us used to work. We're going to talk to Russell Moore about why he left the SBC in 2021, how he thinks of his own legacy in that world, including some questions about complicity and how he's trying to lead a Christian institution when the church as a whole in America seems to be tearing apart at the seams. Before we get to all of that, we did want to let our listeners know about some tough news from this summer. As many of you may have seen on social media, my dad passed away quite unexpectedly toward the end of this summer. And I'm grateful to many of you for reaching out and offering condolences and support, just feeling the support from my broad and wide and far-flung community meant a ton to me. So thank you so much. And I know that we will talk a lot more later on in the season about grief and mourning and community and so much else. But for now, we just wanted to, to let people know so you know why we didn't have a summer season as promised. But grateful for all of you. And thank you very much for being there. Even though we didn't have a summer podcast series, it sure as heck fire still feels like summer here. And I'm not happy about it. Yeah, me either. I am steamed off, to use your phrase, (laughs) that my air conditioning is not only still on, but on very high and not really working. (laughs) Where are Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly when you need them? Uh, 
It's You've Got Mail season. Bury me in a pile of leaves and leave me there until Christmas. <laughs> Maybe we could create fall-themed mood boards. Oh, yeah. yeah. What are the top indispensable items on your pumpkin board? I'm going first more with a feeling. <laughs> mm. Well, it's the feeling of the clocks being turned back by an hour. What does that feel like? Um, I think what's throwing me about right now is that it's still light out until like 8.30. That's my favorite part. <laughs> it's the only thing I want to hang on to. <laughs> now, it's not great when the sun then is going down at like 4.30 mm-hmm. in December. That does not feel great. The worst. So it's the feeling of the first evening when you walk outside your apartment and it's, mm. it's the crisp in the air. Yeah. The chill, the like pleasant chill. My mood board will have many apple-related things. For example, apple crisps, apple cider donuts. That is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I will eat so many apple cider donuts over the next few months. I want to go apple picking. Yes, I seem to recall that you did this last fall. It was fun. Is it worth the, like, trip out of the city? You know, as you know, sometimes leaving the city feels like a whole ordeal. Um... Well, you can come with if you'd like. It's a church outing and we go on a big bus. Mm-hmm. So oh. it is like a whole day thing, but it's kind of nice. Like the details are taken care of, you know? Yes. It's like a field trip. Yes. Let's see. Uh, sweaters. Yes. Jackets. Yes. Layers. Scarves. I'm so excited about all of this. Mm. I think we've talked about Halloween. Should I dress up my dog? Wait, is it potentially offensive to do that? Maybe to the dog. Well, yeah, if you put him in a big hot dog costume, it's a little demoralizing. I feel like there is a person that dresses up their dog for Halloween, and I don't yes. know if I want to be that person, but the dogs are cute. There's like a whole parade here in the city. It's adorable. I'm also looking forward to boots. I'm looking forward to plaid. Mm-mm. Yeah. And dark naturally. colors. Is there something that would not be on your mood board that might be on many other people's mood board? A pumpkin spice latte. I've just got no interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that meme that goes around of like all of the Christian white women with their like yes. perfectly curled waves and skinny jeans and riding boots and sweaters. And big tote bags. They probably dress up their dogs. <laughs> One of the fun things I did this summer was read Russell Moore's new book titled Losing Our Religion, an Ultra Call for Evangelical America. I was actually at a spa Uh and I wondered if it was like the most non-spa book to ever have graced that space. And I wondered if it looked weird to my neighbors. Top 10 wrong books. To bring to the spa for sure. (laughs) It was not the right, it was not the right mood. One of the things that Russell writes is that Jesus is a liberal. Huh? (laughs) Not expecting that. Yeah, I wasn't either. And to be more specific, Russell is pointing out that Jesus, the person described in scripture in terms of what he said and taught, is increasingly perceived as liberal In the conservative evangelical circles he knows and has spent his entire life in. Right. Like loving your enemies is now woke. Yeah, it's woke and weak. Right. Neither of us is in the SBC, but one of the reasons I wanted to read Russell's book and why we wanted to talk to him today is that we 
recognize the sheer scope and power of that Mm -hmm. world and the way so often that what is happening in the SBC is a bellwether for what is happening in the broader American church. And also, it's a super politically charged and extremely weird time. And we wondered how someone like Russell was navigating all of that. Coming up, we'll hear from Russell, a former insider of that world who was definitely made to feel like an outsider in some subtle and some very overt ways. You know, if you really believe that I'm George Soros funded, you shouldn't have a driver's license, (laughs) uh, much less be in any sort of uh, position of leadership. Plus, Roxy and I will talk after the interview about questions that our conversation with Russell left us about the future of Christianity Today, the magazine where we both used to work, and the broader evangelical movement. Stay tuned. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From papal decrees to prayers written by AI, RNS covers it all. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. We also would love to hear from you about what you want to hear this season. Guest ideas, topics, questions we can answer as your free advice columnists. Mm-hmm. Let us know. You know what to do. Email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, But I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're excited to be joined today by Russell Moore, and I am sure that a lot of our listeners are familiar with the more public side of your split with the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago. Something we've talked about a lot on this podcast is kind of the tension of wanting to reform an institution from within versus feeling like you need to leave and be Mm -hmm. a reformer or a prophet from the outside. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little about like, when did you begin to feel like the differences between you and the denomination were becoming too big that you could no longer stay and try to reform from within? Yeah. The problem that I was seeing was that the healthiest people were disengaging 
and the unhealthiest people were engaging more for all kinds of reasons. Mm. And so I concluded, I think that, that I should do other things. But I do think it's a hard decision to make, also for the reason that you mentioned, because you can make a mistake either way. There's a kind of uh, reaction that can just leave institutions to implode for various reasons. And there's a way of staying in institutions that really can't be uh, reformed. It's a hard decision to make. I had to have a lot of of counsel from folks. Mm. You've talked some about this and written about it. When you end up in a leadership position, the pressure you end up facing to kind of toe the party line or represent the party line, at least publicly, rather than speak the truth. How did you experience that at the SBC? And again, when did that begin to feel like you couldn't live in that space any longer? Well, I mean, one of the things uh, that I've learned in this is that as I look back over my life, my mind was wrong a lot and my heart was wrong a lot, but my gut never was. Hmm. And so I can see all of these times where I would think, you know, this seems insane (laughs) or evil or what have you. But I would always be able to say to myself, you can't idealize people. You're dealing with fallen people. This is the way fallen people are, number one. Number two, there was a sense of let's just get through this generational transfer Mm -hmm. because a lot of the unhealth was baby boomer unhealth. Hmm. And you're not baby boomer. I'm not baby boomer. And I could see you're not having that same sort of fighting, quarrelsome, divisive sectarianism and so forth among anybody really under the age of 60. Hmm. And so you're able to then conclude, okay, we're not going to be able to change some of these people but we are able to pour ourselves into and to help cultivate the people who come after them. I mean, when it comes to towing the party line, I'm very much an institutionalist, mm-hmm. for instance. Okay, we have some different ways of doing things, but we're all on the same team. So that means we're going to have our conversations behind closed doors. And once we come to a decision, then I'm going to support the institution and and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there comes a point where that's asking too much. And it's asking not just for unity around some goals, but with some differences as to how to get there and something deeper than that. And it had become deeper than that for you. Yeah. You talk about coming to a sense of complicity kind of participating in a religious and political subculture that you now see as inane and predatory. Those are your adjectives. Mm -hmm. Looking back, what do you feel complicit in doing? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with assuming that there are slippery slopes only in one place Mm. when the slippery slopes are in multiple places. So, for instance, on the gender question, I think for a long time I assumed there's a direction that can easily go to just a kind of Gnostic eradication of what it means to be men and women, Genesis 1 and 2. And that's true. I think we have seen that happen in all kinds of places. But there also was a slippery slope on the other side, too, Mm-hmm. And what I came to see over the years is I just have I have a lot more in common 
with an egalitarian who agrees on the authority of Scripture, agrees on emphases in terms of the callings of men and women in some specific places, but who disagrees with how to apply First Timothy 2 mm-hmm. than I do with somebody who might agree with the same position that I had or have, but who's doing so out of misogyny. What's it like to be accused of being a liberal? I mean, we have some experience in this, but something <laughs> I think a lot of people would laugh to read anything you've written in the last 20 years and be like, what, a liberal? (laughs) But this is certainly a word that has been cast your way lately. What do you think is like the power of the L word? Well, in my specific context, it's, again, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that there is for some folks a kind of war reenactment Mm -hmm. in which conviction isn't really conviction unless... It is seen in driving the liberals out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the liberals just keep getting defined in increasingly weird and narrow ways. Then you have just kind of the really paranoid, crazy time that we're in, in which a lot of times you would say, really, Uh, I've been working in immigration and refugee stuff for almost 20 years now. There was this uh, word that would come out that I was being funded secretly by George Soros, some Mm -hmm. group of Jewish billionaires out there who were trying to replace white people with with immigrants Mm -hmm. and so forth. And my reaction to that for a long time was, you know, if you really believe that I'm George Soros funded, you shouldn't have a driver's license, (laughs) uh, much less be in any sort of uh, position of leadership. Hmm. But then you realize we're in the kind of time where a lot of things that previously people would have said, come on, that's ridiculous. Right. And I could see that even at the fringes. When I was elected president at the ERLC, I remember there was one figure who said, uh, this is a liberal in the tradition of George W. Bush. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Famous liberal president. <laughs> and, you know, that was in uh, 2012, 2013. Mm. What we saw in the fullness of time is that George W. Bush would be considered <laughs> right. a liberal in globalist mm. and whatever in those contexts. And even mm-hmm. actual liberals would long for the day. When George W. Bush, famous liberal, was, yes. was leading our country. <laughs> and that's part of what I mean by what's so confusing about the changing coalitions right, right mm-hmm. now. But I think there's a difference between the way that I would respond cognitively and the way that I would respond emotionally. And so cognitively, I would know it is laughable. I mean, I have lots and lots and lots of very liberal friends who would just laugh at this. Mm-hmm. But there is something, I mean, really what what that language in conservative evangelical context, other language can be used in other contexts. Mm-hmm. What it really does is to say, here's a threat of exile. Mm-hmm. And so the the worst thing we can think to say right. is that you're liberal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's going on. And I think people can respond to that cognitively with very clear sight. Mm-hmm. But often there's a part of you that 
especially when it's in a religious context, it's just really hard to sort out emotionally the difference between that kind of threatened exile and damnation. Mm -hmm. This is really hard to sort that out. Yeah, it's also touching on the potential for a loss of community, loss of relationships, and am I bad? (laughs) Or am am I outside the fold in some actual existential way? Right. And that's a very emotionally uncomfortable place to sit in. And it sounds like you have learned how to deal with that kind of threat of exile and eventual exile over time and learn to reject, this is not actually true about me. (laughs) In this context that you're describing, this very divided and also people moving to the extremes, Mm -hmm. the culture wars (laughs) in a lot of ways. In this context, what role do you see Christianity today playing as a magazine and an institution and a voice to a very divided church? What I hope uh, we are able to do is to help people to imagine what gospel sanity looks like and a kind of Christianity that is not just a means to an end, Mm. but that, that really is rooted in something deeper than that. What I don't think is that we need to have a battle for the soul of evangelicalism and somebody wins and somebody loses. It really struck me, Russell, reading your book, that at some point you basically said, there is no such thing as like saving evangelicalism. Yeah. Historically, CT would have understood itself to be very much about preserving, retaining, shaping this movement. And it doesn't sound like you're bringing that same framework to bear. No, I think I am in the way that the founders of CT meant it. But I think the, the problem with evangelicalism as a movement is that there were all kinds of reasons why we wanted to group people together who really didn't have a lot in common. I mean, any movement that can encompass everybody from Benny Hinn to Eugene Peterson is not a very coherent uh, sort of category, Mm -hmm. but it's a useful category to have to say, okay, there's a type of religious movement that we want to look at, and here are all the contours. It's also very useful to say, look how big we are. We're 30 million people, 40 million people, whatever it is. I think right now what we're seeing is that you have all of these different strands of evangelicalism that are finding each other and reconfiguring. Hmm. And I think that that needs to be cultivated rather than saying what we're trying to do is to drive out the... Benny Hens. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with, if you think about the use of the word evangelical, if you look at what the polling data show, it's that evangelical as a self-identification is remaining relatively steady, but the increases are happening among people who never would have been considered evangelical before, people who don't have a church connection, Mm -hmm. but they see evangelical as a political category. Mm -hmm. And in almost every case, the people who are coming to me and saying, I don't want to use the word evangelical anymore, are people who would fit 
every previous definition of evangelical. And I understand that. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I don't even want to use the word evangelical anymore, but I've changed my mind. There's a bigger global category Mm -hmm. for which there's no alternative designation. Mm-hmm. The kind of Christian who emphasizes this. And sometimes what people will say is, well, let's just change it to Christian. Mm-hmm. And I would say, yeah, but if you're describing us and you're just saying Christian with no explanation, aren't you kind of implying that there aren't any other Christians? Mm. Right. You have to sort of say, this is the sort of emphasis I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know an alternative yeah. word for that. Are you advocating for a more apolitical evangelicalism, or would you say that you are also attempting to find a sane conservatism as well as a sane gospel? I think it would depend on what the word apolitical means, because mm-hmm. I think that what we're, we're looking at right now really has very little to do with politics. Mm-hmm. It just isn't actual politics which is people coming together in the civil space in order to create a society and to solve problems. I mean, right. most politics is really boring and mundane and, and mm-hmm. so forth. That's not what's happening in a time when politics has become tribal boundary markers. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is there's been a confusion between the gospel itself and a particular partisan identity in some uh, wings of the church that has been devastating to the church and to the church's witness to the outside world, and I would argue to the body politic too. Mm -hmm. And so what I would like to see is not an apolitical church. You have to have a church that shapes and forms consciences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the way that people carry out their lives as employees, as you know, sons or daughters, and as citizens. But what we don't need is a partisan church or a personality cult church. And that's what we're dealing with in many cases right now. Yeah. So it's obvious that we're not going back to 2015. Yeah. We're also not going back to 1950s white Christian America. Right. So as we do think ahead, we realize we don't want to go back to these nostalgic visions of previous success, previous security, what would it look like for the American church to experience revival? So I find myself drawn to the Wesleys a lot these Mm. days. In this sense, if you look back at what the Wesleys were attempting to do, it was not to reform the Church of England, although I think they would have loved to have done that. Instead, it was to say, let's imagine a new way that is rooted in an old way. Let's do that. And it organically took hold and changed the Church of England in a lot of ways, eventually. I think that's more the model. But marking out here are the specific things we're going to face, I think that can, if anything, prepare us for the wrong things. So it's kind of T.S. Eliot uh, for quartets. I don't want to love because I would love the wrong things. I don't want to hope because I would hope for the wrong things. Uh, Instead, I'm in the period of waiting, Elliot says, where I'm actually learning to love and to hope 
for the right things and to do that through faith. And that the time of just saying, I don't know what God is doing, but I know, I know he's doing something, that actually can be the most fruitful time possible. So revival, we know what some aspects of it looks like, but we don't know what it means or what it's going to be called upon to do. Thank you so much for your, yes. your time and insights, Russell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Roxy, it's not often that I feel like I pulled my punches in wanting to ask a question and then not asking it in the course of a conversation. But there's one question that I really wanted to ask Russell and we didn't get to it. I think it's the same question I wish we'd asked him too. Yeah. <laughs> or similar, very similar. <laughs> I mean, we got to this a little bit at the end, which is what is the direction of CT generally in a time of deep division? But mm-hmm. from my vantage point, you know, CT, because it's historically tried to carve out this messy middle, it's always going to be perceived as potentially drifting one way or the other. Right. Every editor who comes on, especially people in editorial leadership, bring their own theological background. They bring their own denominational Mm -hmm. history. They bring their own pet projects, not in a bad way, but those end up shaping the direction of the magazine and the things it covers and how it covers it. Mm -hmm. And I've just wondered, is Christianity today becoming more conservative? Yeah. Me too. I don't mean that as a dig, but I do wonder, maybe especially on the question of women in the church, women's leadership in the church, Mm -hmm. you know, CT always had this line, you know, we're like a big tent and we don't declare a position on women's ordination or women's roles in the church and the home. But we had egalitarian pastors and leaders and plenty of women writing for CT all the time. Women pastors, especially on the leadership journal side. Yeah, which was sometimes a point of contention, like how are complementarians going to feel comfortable with this if you have women pastors writing? Mm -hmm. Isn't that a bridge too far? More recently, I've just wondered, is CT becoming more conservative, maybe especially on this issue? That's the question I wanted to ask. Yeah. I mean, it's really similar to the one I wanted to ask. I've watched some of the hires since Moore came on. You know, I think Russell Moore is more conservative theologically and politically than I think a lot of the people that were working there when I was there. Mm -hmm. Southern Baptist Convention is only one of a lot of denominations and non-denoms of Mm -hmm. evangelicals. And though they represent a huge swath, it is a more conservative denomination among evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And so I have wondered, like, what will that mean for Christianity today? I've wondered, like, for Russell Moore, is the project not only trying to find a way to save, I know he doesn't like that, but a way to sort of preserve, preserve evangelicalism, which he, you know, like, let's find a sane gospel is what he said. But I've also wondered, is the project trying to find his way back to a sane conservatism as well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. seeing how right wing a lot of conservatives have become? 
Izzy also trying to find a more centrist middle, but that looks more conservative. I guess it's all about where you are in the spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it truly is. And we talked about this with Russell. Right. It is wild to me, and not because I think of myself as a flaming liberal, but I think it's probably safe to say I'm I'm left of Russell Moore on some issues. Mm -hmm. And it's wild to me that among so many of his cohorts and colleagues and people in SBC circles, he was perceived as potentially being funded by George Soros. Yeah. (laughs) If you have read anything that this man has written or said (laughs) for the last 20 years, there is no position where he would come down on a progressive end of the spectrum in just an objective way. But if you are being daily fed and shaped by conspiracy theory, by fringe right-wing political commentators and, oh my gosh, Twitter feels, I'm sorry, X. X, right. Feels like it's been overrun by a lot of these voices. Then someone who's like, hey, maybe Jesus was really serious about loving our enemies. And maybe we really do not lash out. Maybe we do turn the other cheek or maybe we do care for (laughs) the marginalized in our midst. Like, it's not even going to translate. We have to be in a weird time if Russell Moore is perceived to be liberal. Yeah. I mean, honestly, even if Russell Moore is perceived to be centrist, Mm. you know, like I think when we were covering the Southern Baptist Convention a couple of years ago, there was another news outlet, like a secular news outlet that I won't name, not to be nice, but just because I can't remember which one. (laughs) But the person who ended up getting elected as the president of the SBC, they said the more liberal candidate And there was a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. against that outlet for saying that because it was like, no, this isn't a liberal. This isn't even like really a moderate, just not as right wing. Yeah. There is no liberal side of the SBC in terms of like where you would normally place on the spectrum. Key theological commitments and convictions, interpretation of scripture, Mm -hmm. like missional priorities. None of that maps onto anything close to like mainline liberal Protestantism. No, no. And so it is absolutely like, where are you on the spectrum? But also like, oh my goodness, it's just a moving goalpost all the time right now. And I do think one of the things that Russell Moore said that I found interesting was this reality that like you have to recognize a slippery slope on both sides. And it's so easy for us to be like, on our side to point to the other side and say, oh my goodness, there they go down a slippery slope toward whatever. You know, like if you're, if you're a liberal, you would look at conservatives and say down a slippery slope toward fascism and Christian nationalism. Right. And if you're conservative, you look at a liberal side and you go, oh, there's the slippery slope toward hedonism and Mm -hmm. killing babies when they're born. You only see the worst iterations of the quote-unquote other side as being dangerous. You only see mm-hmm. the danger or the problem or the slide into something bad as moving in one direction. It couldn't be in your direction. It couldn't be like among your right. people. And Russell writes a lot about this in the book as realizing a slippery slope in conservative evangelicalism can look like actually abandoning key elements of mm-hmm. Christian faith. Right. You can lose the heart of the faith in so many different directions, not just in one direction. 
Absolutely. And you may have like clung to these ideas, these tenets of what you believe it looks like to be a Christian, like, oh, family values Mm -hmm. or biblical inerrancy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the way that you end up enforcing that or the way that you end up talking about that or drawing rules around that ends up being incredibly unchristian and unloving. Yes. So you have abandoned something in that. Yes. That to me is, is part of what Jesus is talking about when he's like the the outside of the cup can be clean and the inside can be really gross, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That was the Roxy transliteration. (laughs) Yeah. As Russell put it, like, it's not just the ends, but it's the means. Mm-hmm. And there is such a thing as like unchristian means to supposedly Christian ends. Right. I think the trickiness of Russell Moore's message, as well as some of the critiques people have given toward it, is like, this is too little, too late. Mm-hmm. Good to recognize the slippery slope in the other direction. Good, yes, to get out of the SBC as it seem to become more and more corrupt and more and more interested in an end rather than the means. Mm -hmm. And yet Russell was there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. That's hard to wrestle with. And I think it's difficult to know how I think even talking to Russell more, like I think he's still wrestling with that of like, what does it mean to admit that he was complicit? What does that mean for moving forward? Yeah. And how do you make amends for that? Right. And in a way, those kinds of questions are questions about, like, your past self. Mm -hmm. Because at any given moment, we rationalize why we're doing what we're doing. Mm. Very few people are actively, consciously staying in a corrupt institution or supporting horrible things, thinking that they're supporting horrible things or going along with a really corrupt institution. I mean, he talks about the rationalization of how worse it will be if I don't stay. Right. I have to stay and be the moral force within. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think about last year, we had a really good conversation about the report on sexual harassment among two employees at CT. Obviously, we reflected really personally on that. And I have just continued to think through the reality that, yes, I found the environment at CT in many ways to be not great for women. I'll just put it that way. Difficult for women. But I also was a top leader there for four years. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the case that I let things slide or looked the other way or went along with things that were harmful to some of my colleagues, that were harmful to other women in the organization. And it's not a one-to-one comparison to Russell Moore in the SBC. But the tension is, how do you critique an institution so thoroughly when you yourself were part of it for so long? Right. And obviously, Russell Moore was part of the SBC for a really long time. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not like you just can claim a moral high ground all of a sudden. Right. And I think that's probably what critique, probably from both the left and the right, would be toward Russell Moore. Mm -hmm. 
or a figure like him. Yeah. And I mean, I resonate with that tension too. I mean, not as much from CT, but, but from my job after that, uh, relevant, which RNS has covered some of what went down there, but knowing that something was hurting people and it's hard to leave. It's scary to leave. Also like your Mm -hmm. livelihood is Mm -hmm. reliant on this institution. And ultimately, and I think you would say this about CT and I would say this about relevant and Russell Moore would probably say this about the SBC. I thought what we were doing was good. Yes. The thing on the inside behind the scenes might be ugly in different ways, but the people reading the magazine or the people in the pews, that's not affecting them because they're still getting this good thing. And so I think Mm. you could still believe in what you were doing and almost even start to think about what you, you were experiencing or what other employees were experiencing as like a sacrifice for this greater Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be really easy to get to that place of feeling more like a martyr in your position than to realize that like leaving might be the good thing to do, you know? (laughs) Yeah. There's a kind of weird pride and being like, only I can save it from within. Yeah. For real. I mean, I sometimes felt this way at CT, like, but if I leave, what will the young women coming up, there goes like a, a role model or something. And then it's like, Caitlin, I'm pretty sure, (laughs) pretty sure they can do okay without you. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. I think the temptation to martyrdom or to the perception of your own martyrdom in an unhealthy institution is real. It seems like not just these institutions and denominations we've been talking about, but maybe this whole evangelical apparatus, if that even is still such a thing, like maybe the revival that we talked with Russell about is getting to that place of valuing means more than ends and Mm -hmm. valuing like how we do things rather than what the output or the outcome or the perceived success will be. I would like that. I mean, I think it's, it's tough to see that happening when I'm still seeing, you know, certain folks talking about how, like, what's so wrong with a Christian nationalist nation, you know, because then at least Christian values are being lived out. And it's like, well, at what cost? Right. Like at the cost of religious freedom, at the cost of pluralism, at the cost of people who live here who aren't Christians and have different beliefs, like. Or even at the cost of like people actually being changed in their hearts and minds and not just following a moral code because it's enforced legally. Like, that's not what we're after. (laughs) Right. Right. No, it's not. But in many ways, I also don't know, (laughs) like, how much of this is just bombastic talk on X. Anyway, it's about to be an election season. Aren't you excited? Even the phrase election season sends chills down my spine. Not the good kind of chills. Is this our first election as a podcast? It is, isn't it? Buckle up. Yeah, I don't have a lot of hope in this time for any kind of sea change within the evangelical movement. Mm -hmm. But I also really 
in a lot of ways, I feel for the editors at CT because how do you purport to lead and shape and guide this movement that can only see things in politically charged terms and might write off what you're doing as like weak or woke or womanly. How do you lead a movement of which a vast swath doesn't want you to lead it anymore? They're like, I'm good. We have our pundits. It's a good question. And I mean, CT might find itself in a place with no one to lead. I'm not sure. I think that's an open question to me. Well, on that note, we're starting season six off with a real, a real high positive note about the future. We're just asking the tough questions, Caitlin. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. W- would we call ourselves prophets? Provocateurs? <laughs> that's probably safer. <laughs> I feel that most of the prophets didn't go around (laughs) calling themselves prophets. (laughs) Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone. And Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.